Welcome to episode 118 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And we are recording in two separate COVID bunkers yes. in New Orleans, Louisiana. In Mid-City. Actually, technically, I think we're like isolated out here outside of like several neighborhoods. Like I can see the edge of Mid-City from our porch. Uh-huh. I'm technically in the seventh ward. Oh. And then across the street from me is the fairgrounds. So oh. I'm like at the edge of several worlds over oh, here. Oh, okay. You're like in a liminal New Orleans space. Yes, which is a great space to be in for Halloween season on Swamplex. Spooky time. I'm so excited. And we're starting with a very weird episode uh, as far as like horror movies go. This is like the outskirts of horror as a genre, I think, today's episode. Yeah. All three of the movies that we're talking about are horror movies in their own right in kind of different shades of horror. Like, they're all pretty different, all treating an idea that is, like, kind of cohesive very differently. So, yeah, I think it's a good start. What have you been watching lately besides these uh, liminal space horror <laughs> films that we're talking about today? So, uh, recently, I went on a very tiny Paul Verhoeven binge. So, I mean, it, actually, it's just two movies. I watched Starship Troopers, which I had never seen before. Um, it's the like satirical military bug movie kind of reminded me of Ender's Game and I thought it was fantastic it also was like very much like Robocop I'm sure everybody that listens to this podcast has probably seen Starship Troopers that's a VHS era classic for me it was it was so delicious that movie like introduced me to I think satire like as a concept (laughs) like once somebody pointed out to me like the Nazi imagery that that the American equivalent in the film is like sporting in their like military gear, right. I was like, oh, <laughs> it's not just about squash and bugs. Right. Like, there's something else going on. There's a layer. I mean, it's a, a very common phenomenon, obviously, in art of like political satire in art. Um, there's this comic book called Saga by Brian K. Vaughn and um, about this big war between these like creatures with horns and creatures with wings and two members of these clans are brought together by this like trashy romance novelist who writes like these trashy romance novels with a like politically revolutionary undercurrent that these two people kind of latch onto and then they like have a child together and they're starting the revolution that'll end this this war so that's always like really, uh, that's always been really compelling to me, these like trashy movies that are effective as art on the surface and as avenue for satire. And it's it's pretty like on the nose, but it's I think it's very effective and it still obviously resonates with 2020. That sort of like rabid patriotism. Right, exactly. It has not, has not gone away, unfortunately. And then I finally watched... Dune for the first time, which is 1984, directed by Lynch. Um, it has Kyle MacLachlan as the uh, main hero. And I I really love, like, space operas. And I think the sets of the, like, pre-2000s big-budget sci-fi movies are just feel more expansive than the movies that we have now um, because the practical sets just kind of give more atmosphere for me um i don't love the dune series as a whole because i just like the lead character drives me crazy because he's so perfect like 
all of his advisors are constantly like surprised by how intelligent he is and how insightful he is. Like he's really never caught off guard by anybody. But I just love sci-fi movies in general. So I really, really enjoyed it. And I think Lynch's directing style, I mean, it, obviously the movie did not do well commercially, but it was pretty fascinating to watch. And it was like over two hours. So the fact that he could kind of keep you going in his like dreamlike, odd, very surreal editing style was pretty great. You're almost making me want to watch Dune again, but it's the same trap I fall in with the book where like every few years I forget how much it bores me. <laughs> and then I, I try again every few years and I never make yeah. it to the second book in the series. And I always fall asleep in the middle of David Lynch's movie, <laughs> even though I love the costumes and the right. sets and yeah. uh, like the character of it is great. Yeah. They're gorgeous. Yeah, I love sci-fi. I love Ray Bradbury. I love Isaac Asimov as writers. And so I feel like a total outsider for not ha- not loving Dune. But I, I think I got through the first 20 pages and I just could not take it. Like I was, I was yeah. so bored. And he does this like inner voice thing that kind of bothers me it, where it's like all you can hear all of the characters thoughts and it just feels kind of cheap. But I don't know. I'm really torn because I do think the world building itself is like gorgeous. I love the worms. I'm a big worm fan, you know? (laughs) I do want to say too, um, if you want a different kind of experience with like the novel versus the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, that Starship Troopers novel is the exact opposite of the film (gasps) adaptation. Like, yeah, like the movie's actually kind of actively making fun of like the rah-rah militarism of the book. I don't know. I'd say like Dune is kind of like a faithful-ish adaptation right. as far as like tone goes. But Starship Troopers is like the exact opposite. Yeah. Uh, and it's like kind of really funny. It's funny reading the book in retrospect, how much the movie has like a open distaste for right. its like central thesis. Uh, I don't know. It's a fun read yeah. just for that. So is the author of Starship Troopers um, American? It's Robert Heinlein. Okay. Yeah. I always associate him with like kind of like a Boy Scouts kind of like classic patriotism. Well, I was just thinking like Paul Verhoeven, I think is very critical of like American obsession with violence. Um, so I think that that, I do, first of all, I just love Paul Verhoeven. Like Basic Instinct is one of my favorite movies. Um, he's one of my favorite directors, but I I can totally see him reading Starship Troopers and like being totally horrified by it and then making the adaptation in response. I also watched an 80s film in the past couple weeks about time travel called Millennium. Have you ever heard of Millennium? I don't think so. It is trash. (laughs) It really is. And it's from the late 80s. It's a movie from the guy who directed Logan's Run. Uh Uh-huh. But this is one that's kind of been forgotten over time as opposed to Logan's Run. Mm -hmm. The first... 30 or 40 minutes are about Chris Christopherson, who is like a complete charisma vacuum, mm-hmm. investigating an airline crash. Oh. And you go through all this like tedious bureaucracy, watching him basically shake hands and hold press conferences and listen to evidence about why this airplane crashed. Mm-hmm. And then he has sex with a stewardess who works for the airline. And it turns out, like immediately after they have sex that she's actually a time traveler from a future where <laughs> all women are barren. 
so they're more respected in the workplace in the future because they're <laughs> not just child delivery systems. And then she's this like time traveling super soldier who has two jobs. One is that she goes throughout time and like prevents paradoxes from happening. Cause once a paradox happens, there's like earthquakes kind of in the future, but they call them time quakes. <laughs> and then the other mission that she has is that her and her fellow super soldier airline stewardesses go to different air crashes throughout time and pull the people off board the airplanes and bring them into the future to populate that future timeline because they can have children because they're from the past <laughs> uh, before like climate change had destroyed everything. So it's crazy how this movie starts off as this really boring, dry, like procedural about airline crash investigations. Right. And then it's second half is this insane <laughs> corny future world where like there's this sassy gay robot that's her friend and mm -hmm. there's this like council of like cinnabites uh from like hellraiser kind of like issuing orders from their like flesh tubes and <laughs> it just gets exponentially more insane until it ends so it's like kind of the so bad it's good movie that's like hard to recommend to people because it's a little boring and a little corny right and it's played very like squarely but it's also completely insane if you invest enough time in it that sounds fantastic i do see how it'd be hard because it's like two very different halves that can be very unappealing to a wide variety of people yeah it's like a it's the kind of story that like a david lynch or a paul verhoeven could make so fun but instead right. it's told in this like, it's almost like watching Sully or like <laughs> Spotlight or something. It's like uh, just so by the books and square. And then because of that, you almost don't expect how bonkers the second half is once it arrives. Uh, that is actually totally up my alley. I would love to watch that. I love like super boring Spotlight movies. And I love like <laughs> super crazy science fiction. So, yeah, that's great. You're in the exact Venn diagram. <laughs> I also watched a movie from the 80s that I feel like everyone has seen already. So I guess I'm living a similar right. parallel to you there as well. <laughs> uh, I watched Fright Night for the first time. Have you ever seen that before? I don't think I have seen Fright Night. It's like one of those classic like sleepover horror films because it's yeah. kind of fun. It's got a little sexiness to it. But I just never caught up to it till just now. It's uh, it's really good. I get the reputation. Uh, that's my uh, <laughs> that's my <laughs> review. There are so many movies that it's like I feel like I didn't seek them out because they had good reputations, which is like a crazy way. Like Raging Bull, for instance. Like I know Raging Bull is a great movie. I had heard my whole life Raging Bull is a classic, so I just never watched it. It's like. Because I knew it was a classic, there was no ground to tread. And then I finally watched it, and I thought, this is an amazing movie. Like, this is why people recommend it as a classic. It does kind of take out the thrill of discovery if it's already been canonized. Right. You know? There's really nothing for... No, there's no work for you to do there. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, there are all of these movies that are... Like, I've never... And I'm totally ashamed to say this, but, like, I've never seen The Craft. And I know I would love The Craft, but... The Craft is one of those like classic Halloween movies, and for some reason I'm I, I like don't seek it out, and I've never watched it. It's always on my list of movies that I have to watch, but I'm always like looking at at other things, and I miss out on all these jewels. I will say, Fright Night did surprise me in a couple ways that I didn't expect, which is mostly that like 
it's doing two things. It's both being like really nostalgic mm-hmm. for 1950s and 60s style horror films where like there's this TV horror host yeah. who is like a fake vampire hunter, kind of like Morgus who just died or like Elvira or something. He like hosts this like TV show where he like poses as a, as a vampire hunter. Right. And then the kids watch that all, all the time and they're like, oh, now that there's real vampires, we need to hire this guy because <laughs> he knows what he's doing. So it has like kind of a nostalgia for like older horror films, mm-hmm. but it's also like super 80s um, yeah. in its own way. It's got all this like gross practical gore stuff. It's like super homoerotic and there's all uh. this like intense neon lighting, which is all really fun. Oh, I love but it. What really surprised me though is there's this character named Evil Ed in the film. Mm-hmm who's played by this like teen nobody actor. He's this person I've never seen in a film before. Um, if you look at his IMDb credits, like later in the late eighties and early nineties, he did a bunch of like gay pornos. Oh. So I don't know that he ever got as great of a career as he deserves right. because in this film, he is so electric. Like he's one of those super weird, like extremely charismatic players that you normally don't see in like real movies where he's just so excited. He's basically like crawling out of his own skin the whole time. <laughs> and it's just so fun to watch. Um, and he gets turned into a vampire halfway through. I, I guess that's kind of a spoiler for a movie that's been around my entire life. <laughs> but it's like one of the most explosively strange performances I've ever seen from mm-hmm. a kid that young. Like it's almost like Nick Cajun, how Ooh. much he just steals every scene. So yeah, there's still stuff to find in these like older films, I guess. Like I, I did not expect something as like weird and like, genuinely strange uh out of this film as evil ed even though i'm sure there are plenty of people who um have like evil ed tattoos and (laughs) t-shirts and everything else like i'm sure this is not news to a lot of people but i don't think i was ever sold on the movie as like you got to see this weird ass character uh (laughs) which was what my eyes were glued to the whole time yeah like i i get tricked into thinking that like somehow as we progress like like we're just now becoming like subversive or like figuring out how to do film well and then there are all these like cool old examples of people that like have given us something that is like really genuine and really interesting and it's just like passed over or i mean obviously this movie is like canonized but i just like it when something like genuinely chaotic and difficult to fully wrap your mind around sneaks its way into like a otherwise like just sort of slickly made kind of cheesy horror film like i I thought i knew everything to expect out of it and then that character and that (laughs) performance like completely upended everything for me every time he was on screen which was fun it was a fun discovery in that way yay good introduction to halloween town and i think things will just only get weirder and more esoteric from there i think uh today we're talking about killer language lethal conversation um, dangerous ideas. Yes, poisoned ideas. Which is a great ease into the season, I think. Backing our way slowly into horror. Yes. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. If you live forever, your day, like the things that make you anxious wouldn't actually make you anxious. But the reason that you feel anxiety is because there's a ending point. And whether it's you're, you're afraid of being murdered or you're afraid of just suddenly having a heart attack or you're afraid of, you know, dying in a car crash, all of the multiple ways that I think about <laughs> dying, it's like it's sort of at the root of anxiety. And so I wanted to make a film that touched on that. And as opposed to 
you know, I, I always describe it as like, it's a monster movie without actually seeing the monster. And like horror films and genre films, you know, a lot of it is really just dealing with death. I wanted to make something that was just like, took away the artifice and was just like, it's about death. It's the fear of death is the thing that's contagious. And it, it is the secret monster, which is just death in general. And now it's time for our movie of the minute. This is where we bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And this was Hannah's selection. Yeah. What did you make us watch today? So um, I made you watch She Dies Tomorrow, which is um, Amy Simons's second feature film. Uh, she starred in Upstream Color. So this movie actually came out this year, and I was really excited to see it. It got like a little bit of buzz online. So I really love movies and books and comic books about like ideas that are poisonous. I think the first version of that idea I really remember is from James Tinian IV's comic book Mimetic, which is about this like killer meme that's posted on Reddit and then um, everybody that sees it is like euphoric and everybody's spreading it everywhere. And then the way that you process the meme, like destroy it, like reprograms your brain cells. And then people become these like screaming hordes and they have blood coming out of their eyes and Obama sees it and he has blood coming out of his eyes. It's just like totally ridiculous. But I mean, I think it's a really potent idea, especially now since information is transmitted so quickly um, and, and so broadly. So She Dies Tomorrow has a smaller scope. It's about this woman named Amy who is convinced that she's going to die tomorrow. Um, she's a recovering alcoholic. Uh, we, the film opens up, I think, with her in her home just kind of like wandering around. She's playing Lacrimosa over and over and over again. She calls her friend and she says to her friend, I, I'm going to die tomorrow. I know I'm going to die tomorrow. Her friend tells her that, you know, she's being crazy. She comes over to see her. And then she, Amy kind of infects her friend with this idea of mortality. And so her friend Jane becomes convinced that she's going to die tomorrow. So Jane goes over to her um, sister-in-law's birthday party and spreads the idea to them. And it just kind of spreads through this community of people, this like overwhelming dread that they're going to die tomorrow. And the onset of that is like this blast of colorful, like blinking red and blue lights. And people look into them with like a mix of horror and, and relief and like sadness and joy sometimes. Um, but it's a pretty slow movie. I mean, it's, it, it is a horror movie, but it just feels kind of like, I guess the way that you would feel if you thought you were going to die tomorrow, like this slow onset of dread. So it didn't quite reach my expectations. Like I wasn't as pulled into it as I wanted to be, but I still like really like the idea. And I do think that it's pretty salient, especially now, like it definitely captures the times. Um, yeah. So what did you think about it, Brandon? I found it funnier than I expected it to be. Yeah. I, I feel like it's been sold as this kind of like extremely gloomy, you know, like this is hard to watch during the pandemic because we're all doom scrolling and like, losing our minds about how the world's falling apart and we're powerless against mm -hmm. it and how everything's like going down towards just constant hell. Right. Uh, 
<laughs> Which is true. I mean, the movie is about that constantly. Like, there's no relief really from that. Yeah. Except that I think there's a lot of like really funny moments in it mm-hmm. in a way that I could see if you weren't on its wavelength, how it just would be almost boring. Right. But in those quiet moments where there was relief of tension, I found myself laughing and like recognizing myself in the humor more than I expected to. Yeah. This is like the existential comedy. I feel like everyone was buzzing about with, um, I'm thinking of ending things a few weeks ago where I was kind of bored by the end of that (laughs) film. I was like, Oh, I actually see that here. Like this is a movie about loneliness and the uselessness of life and the futility of getting older and less special and like how useless your body is once you're dead. But the humor like landed for me in this instance, especially Jane Adams's character. Mm-hmm. She plays Jane, much like uh, Amy Simons has her own uh, avatar and a character named Amy. Right. I love Jane Adams so much, <laughs> mostly from happiness, but I I'd always love to spend time with her. Yeah. But yet there's the birthday party that she crashes where she is the ultimate bummer in her pajamas <laughs> yeah. With like bandages over her wrists and like this crazed look in her eyes and everyone else is just trying to have sort of like normal chatty conversation. Right. And she's like, no, you don't understand. I'm going to die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And she just like bums out the whole room. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, I also laughed when Amy was online shopping for a cute urn in right. a kind of like LA uh, vapidness kind of moment. And then she decides, no, I want to be useful in death. I want to be turned into a cool leather jacket. <laughs> I don't know. There's just like little little character humor moments that I really did not expect out of this. And I ended up really liking the movie for having that relatability. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's pretty rare for cosmic horror with this out there of an idea and this much dread to also be like relatable and for you to see yourself in it. Yeah. I don't think I picked up on the humor. Uh, and the genre of this movie listed on the internet is technically like horror comedy. So it is obviously meant to be a comedy. I don't think I picked up as much on the comedy, except there is this one part where Jane goes to this doctor because she's convinced that there must be something physically wrong with her or psychologically wrong with her. And the doctor is like, well, there's nothing wrong with you, but you know, if, uh, if you're afraid of catching something, I can like give you some antibiotics, <laughs> which is just like the most irresponsible thing you could possibly do. And also just feels like very, very much how the, the mood feels like, I don't know, just like take something. I can give you these, these things to take the edge off. I did love the leather jacket uh, scene. And, and then when she goes to the, the leather maker and she's like, okay, so would I have to like bring the animal? Like how soon after it dies would I have to bring it? He's like, well, it'd still have to be warm and, but I can like take the body and then I gut it out. And and they're like, just kind of like going through these very banal steps of like turning your body into a leather jacket. (laughs) And she kind of zones out kind of like the characters in, um, in fabric when the guy's describing how to fix a washing machine. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, it's not quite as funny as in fabric, I don't think. No. The humor is very much mixed with the gloom. Like, mm-hmm. the movie is not in a great mood. Right. It's bummed out. Yeah, it's very bummed out. But especially Jane Adams, I thought had a lot of funny moments. 
the scene where she's at the birthday party and the lights go out uh, because they're about to bring in the cake to blow out the candles mm-hmm. and she gasps. <laughs> like, <gasps> and we all know what she's thinking in right. that moment. But then she leans over after that beat to be like, I thought that was it. I thought that was me dying. <laughs> so she like kind of like drives the, the point home right. with an extra beat. And for some reason, I was just on the wavelength of the, the way the humor was uh, delivered. Yeah. It just hit me in the right way, I guess. Well, I'm glad that it did because like, I think I was expecting more of the horror. So I was a little disappointed. So I'm, I'm glad that you like got more out of it than maybe not than you thought you would, but that you got something out of it that you didn't think you would get out of it. Well, I think the, the way the horror is represented is interesting because this is a movie about death mm-hmm. and like the dread of death, but there is no on screen death from anyone there's a little bit of like bloodshed every now and then but yeah from what i recall there's no killing or self-destruction or anything the only there is one death i mean we don't see it happen but her right. like boyfriend kills himself i think yeah there's blood yeah but mostly the horror in a visual sense is just those weird flashing lights as characters stare directly into the camera and like consider the sort of uselessness of their lives right. and <laughs> how useless they're going to be in after the next day when they're just a dead body. Right. I think that stuff is beautiful. Like it looks really nice. Yeah. And I like that it's kind of unexplainable in a lot of ways. Like the central hook that's even in the title isn't really explained by any character until you see it happen two or three times. Mm-hmm. Like the first half hour of the film, it's almost like the characters are on mushrooms or something. You don't know why they're acting so weird right. until they start repeating. Like I'm going to die tomorrow. And that phrase gets repeated as like a meme. Mm-hmm. Right. So you wouldn't know that was even the hook if you had never seen a trailer or anything for this mm-hmm. until like well into it. So I could see like if you were gearing up for a horror film in like a traditional way, and you're watching this and basically nothing violent happens ever. Right. The premise is hard to hook onto for the first third of it, at least. Yeah. It's a short movie. It's like 80 minutes. And then beyond that, like most of the on-screen visual stuff is people talking or weird lights. Like right. I could see this being a huge bummer for like <laughs> a horror nerd if they were looking for something a little more concrete than that. I think I was also looking for some kind of like catharsis from this year because this year has felt so nihilistic but in I mean kind of in the same way that it's represented in the in the film it's like you're realizing how horribly everything is going but truthfully my personal life has not been impacted that much like except for hearing all of these horrible stories from other people so it's like being surrounded by dread and then like going to the grocery store and like going to work. And, you know, it's like, it's not this horror bloodbath revelation. It's like just the slow realization that things are bad and there isn't really anything you can do about it. And, yeah. and then you're just kind of like continuing, like she, Amy goes and takes a dune buggy ride and then she like makes out with the dune buggy guy and then that's like not that interesting but like the catharsis of a more violent like more kind of straightforward horror movie would be that there's some resolution to it all and then this movie is unresolved like all the characters are alive at the end Um, you don't really know if anything's actually happened except that 
you know, some people have died. Not, I mean, and you haven't even watched them die. So I, th- I think it was like unsatisfying, but also like more in keeping with what's happening now. Yeah. And, you know, this is a movie that was filmed and written before COVID. Right. But it's definitely of the last four years where like every few days there is like some horrific event political global Mm -hmm. like climate whatever right where all you can really do is scroll through social media takes and reports and like images and you can't really do anything about it other than just feel like oh god this is going to be the end of it all right and it's just like slowly (laughs) approaching yeah like lacrimosa is just playing on repeat while we're looking up urns if you do want a um movie that has a more cathartic view of 2020 as like a horror show mm-hmm. um do you see host on shutter no it's about a haunted zoom meeting <laughs> um, really yeah and it was oh filmed you know during the pandemic uh-huh. in, in different locations and stuff uh and it's really well done oh boy and that one has a lot more traditional violent payoffs yeah but uh kind of like you were saying she dies tomorrow is very much realistic to how life is right now where like you're just kind of Every day you wake up feeling like, okay, this is the last one. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> things are obviously reaching their point where I'm going, we're all going to die tomorrow. Yeah. And that payoff never arrives. You never actually die. You just have to live with that feeling over and over again, um, which is worse in its own way. And I found kind of relatable. Yes. But it also helped that I found it funny too, I think. Yeah. And then um, the very last scene, she's just sitting in the plane saying like, it's okay. It's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's okay. I mean, I feel like that's like what most people are going through right now. Just that like repetitive cycle, like everything's fine. Everything's fine. I'm doing this thing that's good for me. I'm like drinking water. I'm going on my walk and everything is horrible. And oh my gosh, the world is crumbling around us. I think this movie in general is better enjoyed if you kind of understand what it is like you were saying like don't expect it to be this slaughterhouse uh but i i I think it does have some pretty poignant things to say about the state of the world as it is right now and i think like obviously every person has dealt with mortality throughout human history our own personal mortality but i think more than ever we're thinking about like our mortality as a civilization or like you know the mortality of our democracy Um, or of the United States as a country. So I I think it feels different in that way, too. Like, this movie made me reflect on the collective, like, realizing that, you know, our time is limited, basically. The sky is a person. Laughter is walking. Yellow is crowded. Friends are verbs. Teeth are entering. I think we're saving the world with shitty haiku. Okay, Help me out here. Well, She Dies Tomorrow was something you were looking forward to for a while, and it might not have reached or met your expectations. Mm-hmm. I feel like I had a similar experience this episode. Um, I've been hearing hype for the film Pontypool mm-hmm. from 2009 for 
ever right like, for like the last decade yeah i've heard how great this movie is um and i just never made the time to watch it and you know if we're gonna have a conversation about killer language i think this movie fits in that mold yes. like exactly right. and it does a similar job as she dies tomorrow where it's about ideas and it's about how dangerous it is for ideas to spread mm-hmm. in Pontypool. It's not a single phrase that spreads and mutates. It's terms of endearment <laughs> and the English language are like the two modes of this like virus spreading. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all set in this very tiny Canadian towns, little like radio station. I think that's like in a church or something. Right. Yeah. It's like in a basement. It's basically at the community center. Yeah. And we watch this sort of like shock jock DJ go through his morning routine of like providing local color for the people driving to work in the morning as this like early morning broadcast where he's drinking on air, like before the sun even (laughs) rises. And these two women are working in the, um, or like manning the booth on the other side of the glass and taking phone calls and reporting news to him. So kind of like feeding him information to keep the listeners entertained. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the broadcast, Things outside the studio just get stranger and stranger. Like they start getting strange reports from people who aren't really making sense and are reporting these sort of nonsense events of like piles of people and like exploding buildings and things turning into other things. And they start repeating phrases over and over again. And trying to report on this like half information is driving him mad Mm -hmm. as he's on the radio. And two things happen. It kind of turns into this like zombie invasion film where this like language virus that has made the world into like a nonsensical chaos outside starts like coming into the studio where like people are bashing their brains against the recording booth glass, trying to get to the last few people who aren't infected yet inside. And then also the people inside are infected, even though they're never bitten like in a traditional zombie sense, because just hearing just hearing the English language be communicated by surrounding citizens of their town Mm -hmm. is enough to get to them. And they have to find a way to break through this cycle by creating nonsense language themselves. They have to like redefine what words mean and like basically speak in nonsense Mm -hmm. to break out of this like communicated virus. Yeah. I didn't like this movie as much as I wanted to. Yeah. I I really like the idea of it. And I think that the way it like weaponizes your imagination against you is like really cool. Right. But it's also centered on this like macho Howard Stern type asshole. Yeah. I think you're supposed to find at least somewhat charming. (laughs) And I found spending 90 minutes with him interminable. And I wanted out of that booth so bad. (laughs) I don't know how you felt. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because, like, like I said, Mimetic, that comic, was my first real introduction to this idea as, like, a horror. And Pontypool is very similar to Mimetic in that the whole idea is that your mind is processing. Like, the virus infects you as a result of your mind processing a word, in this case. Which is just, like, like, that idea is so fertile to me it's just really really interesting um so honestly i think pontypool better encapsulated the idea that drew me to she dies tomorrow i didn't mind mazzy grant 
I feel like I'm I'm just like pretty used to the shock jock personality. I don't know. It's like I I didn't love spending the movie with him basically, but he he was like he was fine. I think the thing that disappointed me about this movie was that I I don't I think they had a really great idea and I don't know that they knew exactly what to do with it. Like the end is just this very chaotic attempt to figure out what the virus is and then they they kind of figure it out and then He's broadcasting this nonsense lexicon over the airwaves, and then it's like ultimately doesn't matter, and the like community center is bombed out. It it just wasn't that satisfying to me. Like it, it ended very abruptly. And then there's that weird post credit yes! scene that so I <laughs> I just can't. I I didn't even know like what I had no idea how to interpret that. And I feel like a lot of people have put a lot of like mental investment in like interpreting what they're doing with that scene. And I could not care less. Right. <laughs> exactly. I was, I was like, the, I don't understand this and I don't, I don't care. I like, I feel like my mind even like it rejected that whole scene. Like they're dressed yeah. up in old timey, like 1940s clothes. Right. And they're doing kind of like a macho noir. Right. Traditional masculinity kind of thing. And doing like a performed nonsense as a way of like evading the virus, yeah. I guess. But even putting those two sentences together, I don't even know that I'm <laughs> describing anything. Right. One thing that I loved about the film was the, I loved the like intermittent horror interjections. Like I thought that was super effective. I think it's really hard to actually come up with scenarios that are like really horrifying and strange and surreal like that that don't feel like kind of tired and I think piles of bodies like piles of people converging to become a mass has always been like really threatening and strange like humans moving is this kind of like like a school of fish and converging into one flesh is super weird and that happens at a couple different points in the film and then their on-air kind of reporter hides in a grain silo and then he finds this man that's like speaking in a child's voice and like trying to climb back inside of his mother. It, it, I, I thought that those scenes were like creepy and I love that they're just these little interjections over time and most of the movie takes place in this like isolated radio booth. Even when you hear those interjections, you're not seeing any of that imagery. Right, it's exactly. just like making you picture it yourself, which you're going to picture something way more grotesque and fucked up than what the movie could ever afford right. to <laughs> visualize. Right, exactly. Which is brilliant. Yeah, I thought that was that was great. Um, but yeah, I, like you, I've heard of, like, Pontypool has been recommended over and over again. It's always on those, like, lists of small horror movies or, like, indie horror movies you have to watch that are streaming on this site. I was a little disappointed, but I it still gave me what I wanted, which is the core idea and then like the gross weird stuff that people do when they're infected. I just wish it was like a little more cohesive or like they I feel like they had that idea and then they didn't build out the actual like repercussions of the virus. I I don't know. I like I like it as a piece of writing. Uh, yeah. More than I like it as an experience. Like mm-hmm. spending the time with that character got really old really fast for me. Mm-hmm. But there were other things about it that I admired. Like when I was um, younger, I used to be obsessed with this Burroughs quote that was like, language is a virus from outer space. 
uh, which I always thought was like a, one of those ideas that you hear that sentence. You're like, what the fuck does that mean? Like your mind kind of adds all this meaning to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie, I feel like is kind of a feature length version of that concept. Yeah. And that exact effect, which even if I thought the choice of protagonist was annoying and unpleasant, uh, that's not going to completely undo that work. You yeah. Know? I also feel like it could have been more effective because like, you know, when I think of radio as a virus, I think of like Alex Jones and Rush Limbaugh, like, you know, those kinds of radio hosts that are like spouting garbage into the air at all times. So I think Mazzy could have been, if he was like an even shittier person and he was like culpable, like even more clearly culpable in spreading this virus, I think that could have been interesting but it yeah he's definitely the protagonist who's like a little rough around the edges and and the producer has to rein him in sometimes but yeah i mean you're you're absolutely supposed to sympathize with him and he's i don't think they really push the media angle as much as they could yeah i, I think you're supposed to identify with this sort of like gen x apathy right. a little bit and sort of be horrified when that tough masculine exterior is like chipped away and he's like scared as scared as everyone else. Right. Um, whereas like, I don't know, I just didn't care what, <laughs> what his personal journey right. was. I'm kind of curious. Cause I think the other two films we were talking about have very clear ties to the pandemic mm-hmm. lifestyle. This one, I saw a couple things that resonated with me about like how life is right now. Because basically we're all very isolated Mm -hmm. and only communicating through like spoken and written language right now. We're not really interacting physically right now. So like this idea of like language as horror or as like a mode for horror is I think very of the times. But I don't know if there's any like specific detail about this that you resonated with you as like pandemic related. I mean, I think just the panic throughout the film, it's just like the people in the radio booth they don't understand what's going on. They're getting these little snippets of information that are horrifying, but like all these people are calling in and nobody can understand what they're saying. So, and I feel like the communication breakdown and the ensuing panic is what I resonated with the most. And like knowing something is wrong and not understanding like what it is or, or how to fix it or, Um, how to even how to like communicate with people and then realizing that the words that you're using to try to help are actually like maybe putting people at risk or you're not communicating the way that you need to like when uh, she translates the message from French because French is like a safe language and then at the very end it says please do not translate this message and this is the assistant to Mazzy she obviously intended to spread this message to people in the hopes that it would help them. And then it was like spreading the virus. I felt like that's especially a huge part of the coronavirus as far as communication about what it is and how to protect yourself. That stuck out to me too, but even more so than the translation, what like really resonated with me was like when she, that same character like wants to go to her kids very badly. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's like, the main thing that sucks right now is like how much yeah. 
you want to go to your community and your Mm -hmm. family and your friends and like hug them and like get through this together Mm -hmm. and how that is the exact wrong thing to do right Right. now. And she like puts her kids at risk by talking to them. Right. That was like, oh, wow, that is very COVID. That moment beyond just like the, you know, sitting in a room where everything's normal, but all the information you're getting from outside is like the world is ending. Do not move. Right. Uh, Stay put. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's Yeah. That was so heartbreaking when she's sitting in the booth and she's, saying like hi sweetie it's okay you know it's like obviously trying to comfort her children and like it's like that's like the one word that you can't use (laughs) yeah and I think it's been like extremely hard I mean I'm personally I already don't live anywhere near any of my family um so I'm pretty used to just like zoom calls and um whatever but like obviously it's been very hard for people that have regular contact with like elderly family or even people that are scared right now and wish they could be with their family and and like you just can't do it. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree. That was really affecting. Well, I think the last film on our list has a much more direct, obvious length to information in the COVID age. Mm -hmm. The last movie we watched is bug, which was directed by William Friedkin in 2006 so it stars Ashley Judd and Michael Shannon, who's amazing in this movie, and Harry Connick Jr., who's also pretty great. He's a pretty famous musician from New Orleans. I'm sure many people know that. Um, but he plays this like horrible, abusive uh, ex-husband. So Bug is about Agnes. She lives in a pretty rundown motel in rural Oklahoma. She works at a gay bar. Um, She's isolated. She is in poverty. She uh, drinks all the time. And she, her friend introduces her to this man named Peter that she meets at the bar, played by Michael Shannon. And Agnes and Peter start a relationship They fall in love and Peter starts descending into these paranoid schizophrenic episodes involving bugs. So the first time they have sex, he thinks he sees a bug on the bed and then he's seeing them everywhere. He's feeling them in his skin and he slowly draws Agnes into his delusion and they kind of share it together in this tiny motel room. So... I think this movie is the least like extreme interpretation of that idea of, or the least literal idea of like killer language. Um, But it's like a very intimate transmission of psychosis. And it is kind of about love too, and how it feels better to be connected to somebody whose delusions are kind of bringing you into a dark place than to be alone. And she actually, Agnes says, I would rather talk about bugs with you than nothing with no one. Yeah, so I, I thought it was like kind of a, an interesting take on that same idea. Yeah, if there is like a connection with like the language aspect, it is just in the idea that conspiracy theories are a kind of virus on their own. Yeah. Um, and especially, you know, right now, just how quickly QAnon bullshit has become normalized. Yeah. Where like politicians are running on that platform and like winning local elections, but that can only get worse from here. Right. Or like 
harmless movies are being like targeted by this insane anti-Semitic conspiracy nonsense that just gets stronger and more like mainstream every day. Right. The way that spreads, I think, is clearly connected to this. We're living in a time where people can't even get on the same page about whether coronavirus is real. Right. And this is a movie where these two people who cohabitate have a different reality they have subscribed to. Like, no one else sees the bugs. No one knows what they're talking about. Anyone who walks in that motel room is like, what is going on here? Y'all are feeding (laughs) off some dark energy. You're off on your own tangent so far away from the rest of the world. And yeah, that's what resonates, I think. It's just like the way that conspiracy theories become so quickly normalized and spread in a very viral fashion. Like Mm -hmm. that is of the now. But I don't think that's what the movie's about, really. Like it's when you get to the core of what it's about, it's like kind of the first time they have sex. Michael Shannon talks about how, you know, he doesn't like to get close to someone else Mm -hmm. romantically because he stops seeing himself. The codependence of any romantic relationship obscures who you are and your individual self. And the two participants in that dynamic just become more blurred and more invested in each other. So we're like, no one even knows themselves anymore right. by the end. Yeah. Um, and that goes to such an absurd extreme by the end of this film where they're like, basically, you know, if conspiracy theorists traditionally wear like a tinfoil hat, right. Uh, they've made their entire house into a tinfoil right. hat. <laughs> they live inside of it. Yeah. A tinfoil tent. Yeah. And it li- it's lit w- with bug zappers. So there's like this crazy cold electric blue to it. It's the most extremely violent film out of any of these. It's like... Yes. This is the second time we've actually talked about this on the podcast. We usually don't double dip like this. Oh, no. But, I mean, we talked about it in a completely different context before. It was like our top five freaking movies was the conversation. Mm -hmm. And this was our number one as a group. Yeah. Um, And rewatching it, I was kind of taken aback by how much this feels like a mid 2000s like Lionsgate or like Dimension Extreme horror film like yeah. it's got this really aggressive horror editing that's supposed to like freak you out man like <laughs> this is like microscope images of bugs and grubs moving around yeah. with like scary metal music playing that's supposed <laughs> to like yeah it's like jolts to like basically supplement the fact that it's just two people talking in a room the whole movie mm-hmm. and i found that stuff distracting the first time we talked about it in the podcast, knowing that going in this time, I was a little less bothered by it. Yeah. But it is like in stark contrast, I think with the other two films where like, this is the most capital H horror film or like the most like violent in your face, like gore payoffs in a genre sense. I think also it's the one that's the most genuinely creepy. Like it really does upset you in a way that Pontypool and she dies tomorrow. Never really try to, I don't think. Yeah. I think that, Pontypool and She Dies Tomorrow are like theoretically scary, but the, but you're never like, I don't know, you're never really afraid for the people on screen. You're just kind of like watching this idea unfold. But I was just like so invested in Agnes and Peter and like watching her apartment like go from, you know, like a clean, simple apartment and then then like having these bug sticky tape rollers like hanging (laughs) down like ornaments and like getting stuck to people and Michael Shannon has all these like 
sores on him from he's like picking the bugs out of his skin and then the transition into the tin apartment is just like so wild and actually the first time I watched this movie I had no idea what the plot was I I didn't read anything so you know in the beginning Agnes is dealing with her abusive ex Jerry he just got released from prison he had threatened to kill her he beats her up and then she meets Peter who seems like a pretty compassionate like nice guy he's he's a little quiet but he seems like a genuinely pretty good person and I thought the movie for some reason was just going to be kind of like him and her teaming up against Goss and then it goes into this totally off the walls horrifying film and then the the payoff at the end is like he just really takes it to the ultimate conclusion and it is written by Tracy Letts and it's based on the the play so you know obviously like Tracy Letts was the one that led it there but it really is like one of the most satisfying endings to a horror movie I've seen in a long time and also I dare say it is kind of funny in its own way too (laughs) even when it is at its most fucked up yeah i am the bug queen i'm the super mother bug (laughs) oh man yeah and like just the free association conspiracy theory rambling where they just like make up new conspiracy theories as they're talking Mm -hmm. and they convince themselves of it instantly right there is like a subversive humor to it on top of it just being like deeply upsetting and everything else right and probably is like the best performance i've seen from any of those three actors this this is my first exposure to michael shannon who quickly became one of my favorite actors as everyone else Mm -hmm. also fell in love with him but even going back to it now it's like he's everything in this movie he's kind of like cute yeah in the first he is he's so cute (laughs) but he's also recognizably dangerous even while he's cute and then you know by the end he's just a rabid animal like when you first meet michael shannon i think the expectation is that he's dangerous in the way that Jerry Goss is dangerous and that he could kill her in her sleep. He could, you know, he could rape her. He could, you know, he's this like unknown male and you don't know what his intentions are. And and then he turns out to be this like totally different kind of threat to her that she totally buys into. And she she says to Jerry like, oh, you tried to kill me one time and that was, you know, that was it. And we're we're over it's done get out of my apartment and then you know she kind of goes willingly with peter into a uh, murder suicide or uh you know a, like a suicide together so it's like she ends up in the same place but it comes from this very dark version of love and paranoia and isolation and alienation from the outside world and they build that um, inner world in a middle school gym in Metairie uh, weeks before Katrina hit. Really? Yeah, which is very strange. Oh, I didn't know that, actually. <laughs> I think it was Grace King High School Gymnasium. Oh, wow. Uh, on veterans. I did know, though, that Tracy Letts actually wrote this part for Michael Shannon, who was, I think, better known in the theater scene, obviously. And then when... Um, William Friedkin was adapting it, the production company wanted to cast somebody with more name recognition, and Tracy Letts was like, no, it has to be Michael Shannon. This part is made for him. So, I mean, this might have been his break. I mean, I feel like Michael Shannon, I mean, he's not like a name brand star, but he has like a huge 
very dedicated fan base because he's obviously an amazing actor. But I thought it was really interesting that that this was written specifically for him. And he's so good with his like his twitching. He does have like a cute, weird kind of scary face. And he is like very genuinely compassionate and also totally crazed. So it was just, I mean, a mind-blowing performance. Yeah, I don't know if most people remember him as the we're going to WrestleMania kid from Groundhog's <laughs> Day. But uh, <laughs> that's mostly what I remember him from before this. He was in a John Waters movie too okay. uh, in the late 90s. But nothing really as powerhouse right. as uh, this and attention grabbing. I also was terrified of Harry Connick Jr. Yes. in a way that I <laughs> don't think I've ever have right? been before. And everyone's on their best self. Like everyone is at the top of their game. Yeah, fully invested and it feels like a very claustrophobic movie. I mean, there are like two sets, basically. Like there's the, the bar, which gets, I mean, 15 minutes of time. And then the rest of it is in the room. So just watching two to four people bringing everything they have for an hour and a half is just amazing. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. And it's not that surprising that the best movie of this batch is the one that was written for the stage yeah because these are all very dialogue heavy films Mm -hmm. and that medium is just sort of better for that kind of writing i think right even though i think friedkin goes out of his way to make this more cinematic so it's not just like very stage play limited he always he always does a good job with that he did the birthday party and the boys in the band and killer joe like he he does a great job with stage play adaptations yeah but yeah i i think out of this batch it's pretty clear bug is the best film? <laughs> I mean, I, I would expect that maybe anyway, because, I mean, obviously, like, Tracy Letts is an amazing writer. William Friedkin is an amazing director. And then Pontypool is, I mean, I think Pontypool has a great idea, and it's it maybe didn't have the best execution. And then She Dies Tomorrow is another, like, you know, it wasn't trying to be this, like, star horror movie. It's this, like, small mediation by and it's the director's second feature um so yeah i mean bug just has all of the cards stacked in its favor i think i mean but one thing is i it deals with that idea of poisonous ideas the least literally but i do think it actually is like a very compassionate read of that of that concept peter is obviously spreading these toxic conspiracy theories but you kind of understand where he's coming from he has a father that like homeschooled him and you get hints that maybe his father has like some wild ideas that he's instilled in Peter and then Peter was in the military and he harkens back to these horrific things that the US government has done like Project MK Ultra and the Tuskegee experiment and like when the government does these like highly unethical atrocious projects on its citizens like i mean you can understand why people come up with conspiracy theories and and both peter and agnes have trauma that they don't really know how to deal with they don't know how to resolve it and so they come up with these theories that put them at the center of their own lives and like explain away their problems like through peter Agnes finally finds a way to process her son's disappearance. Like, 
it makes sense in the scheme of their ideology. So, I mean, I think that I fall into the trap of like being extremely frustrated by conspiracy theorists and horrified by the spread of conspiracy theory communities and like that toxic energy. But, and I think Tracy Letts was just interested in how that idea spreads and not, he's, he's, he doesn't really condemn um, the people that are kind of infected. No. And I'd say the people in real life right now who are being invited into the cult Mm -hmm. of a, current conspiracy theories there are also hurt right disenfranchised people who are looking to make sense of the world right now which is very chaotic mm-hmm. and evil and it's like much easier to blame a very specific set of people than it is to like actually deal with how complicated and nuanced and spread out all this fucked up <laughs> shit right. is but like in the, in this case you know the target they chose to pick was like Jewish people and um, the same old, same old of uh, marginalized people who always get the finger pointed at them. Yeah. You know, at least uh, Peter isn't racist, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just like the government is like putting bugs in my teeth, which, you know, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily put it past the government to have put bugs in people's teeth at some point. Like, it's hard to straddle that line of like, Everybody is a human being and people come to the ideologies they come to for reasons and like this is actively hurting other people and it just can't continue. Like it is like totally monstrous behavior coming from human beings and it's hard to grapple with what to do with that. Um, And clearly like the things that we have been doing have not been like very effective at stemming the problem. So, and not that it's like a new problem necessarily, but it's, yeah, I think it's a really difficult subject to talk about. Yeah. And I got to say, uh, she dies tomorrow was, uh, the reaction to the chaos of the world outside (laughs) that I related to. I was like, Oh, doom scrolling and like searching for a cute urn for someone to put me in. once (laughs) My body expires. Like I get that. I I feel that reaction a lot more closely to my heart. Yeah. I I found something some sort of like mirror reflection in that film right. that uh, spoke to me. I think the watching order for this maybe may like Pontypool and then Bug and then she dies tomorrow to like as like a after dinner drink. Down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, okay, where do I go to find some urns? That's how I felt when I was looking for cat stuff today. We're gonna um, adopt two cats potentially in the near future, but maybe farther in the future. And just like looking at all of the cat carriers, I was like, this is totally soothing my existential dread (laughs) like which cat carrier is going to be the cutest for a kitty (laughs) well uh next week on the episode boomer and i are going to talk about a giallo film about a satanic cult and a conspiracy Ah! that drives a woman mad (laughs) so look forward to that (laughs) yeah it's untreaded territory for the swamp flicks podcast yeah we've never done a satanic (laughs) cult film before that's not true Not true. And also, I'm going to link in the show notes of this episode our list of horror recommendations for this month. I went through every horror film we reviewed over the past year, the ones we liked the most, that are currently available streaming, and I listed one for each day of the month. Aw, that's so nice, Brandon. I do my best. (laughs) (laughs) That's good content. I try so hard to give you good content. (laughs) 
that good, good content. That's my soothingness, I think, is going through that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, oh, this is a process that could take me an hour and I can zone out and stop thinking about the world. Right. I can think about movies for this amount of time. And there are plenty of other spooky episodes coming in the next few weeks in the lead up to Halloween. Yay. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody.